Good morning, all. I would just love it if you would pray with me right now. Father, we come to you today, and I just, I pray in the name of Jesus, and and Lord, we are so desperate for you right now. I'm so desperate for you. I'm desperate for your words. God, I pray that you would just set all of me aside and that that I would just literally um, speak only your words and that my mind would be your mind and that your heart would be your heart um, for people. And Lord Jesus, I pray that you would maybe even right now in this moment that you would chip away at any stubbornness that may rest in us as a body of believers and, and just people who are gathered here today. I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would chip away at any unbelief. I pray, Lord, even in this moment that you would chip away at any fear that we may may experience because of the word that's brought today. And Father God, I pray that you would just chip away right now in this moment, that you would just cause a fracture in people right now, that they, uh, that they would receive your word in the way that it's intended. And we pray in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen. Well, this is week nine of our series. And what we've said all along, in case you've missed some of this talk or all of this talk, um, we always have people coming into the church for the very first time. That's something we just, we, we rejoice in that. We celebrate in people who, who come and, and hear the word and experience this, this community of faith. We kind of think it's a big deal. And what we've said all along in this whole series is that we are learning how to battle spiritually so that we can live victoriously. So this, this series has been obviously about spiritual warfare and taking the elements of which um, Deacon Yoder actually talked about. David Yoder, he actually went through the main passage for this whole series in Ephesians 6, 10 through 17, 18. And he, he read that for us. And this becomes the backdrop of not just this talk, but every talk that, um, that has been in this series. And we only have one more week left. And then we're actually going to jump right into a very special Christmas series unlike any other Christmas series um, that I've taken part of, actually not just in this church, but in church in general. So we really look forward to what God's going to do. I want to uh, just kind of set up where we're going to be today with the story, if I could. Uh, is, that, is that cool with you? If it's cool with you, say it's cool with me. All right. Any objections? Nope. All right, good. I didn't see it. Notice I didn't give you a chance because um, you said it's cool with me. So, uh, so several years ago... Um, my mother and my Aunt Dina have this great idea that they would take us on this trip, just kind of a once-in-a-lifetime trip. We were, uh, I, I would rather, I was really young, and it was all of us getting together. It was my mother and my brother, myself, and then my Aunt Dina and her kids. And I don't, I don't even know how many other people were there. Honestly, there was, there was a truckload of us. It was like a caravan, and we're in Washington, D.C., and we're kind of like doing our thing, and it was just like everybody together. We, it, was, it had to have been, now as a parent, I look back, and it had to have been like herding cats. I mean, it really had to have been because we were just like so eager to do whatever we wanted to do in, in D.C., or, you know, you just can't. It's just so big. And I remember as we're getting on the, the subway thing, I remember that we would get on the subway. I don't know what they call it there, but I call it a subway. Uh, that we would get on the subway and it would take us to the next stop. And, and, and it was always the same. You get onto the subway, the, the door opens at your stop and you get out and the door closes and the subway takes off and it kind of leaves you behind. And, and so this was like our story all day. We're going about doing our thing. And like I said, I'm, I'm a little kid. My cousins, we're all little. And, and there's just, I believe, just two adults. And uh, my mind's kind of foggy on that, but, but this is crystal clear. So we were in and out of the subway. And I remember we specifically got 
uh, that we were inside the subway waiting for our next stop. But as we're kind of progressing along, that the subway stopped, but it wasn't our stop. Are you tracking with me so far? It wasn't our stop. So the doors, they open, they just open automatically. And then assuming it's somebody's stop, although it wasn't our stop. So the doors open. And then all I know is my cousin steps out of and off of the subway onto the platform and, and the subways don't stop. So it's like door opens, exchange of people, door closes, it bolts. And all I know is my cousin is out there and it's almost like this, no, in our mind, you know, that kind of thing going on. And, my, and so my cousin's out and I don't even know whose arm it was. I know it was some adult arm reached out with like a mama arm and just like mother hand him and grabbed him and literally jerked him into the subway door closes. We take off. Like it was that fast. I'm like, like that was, and I, you know, as a little kid, I was thinking, that is a great opportunity to leave him behind. Why did we miss this opportunity? It was my cousin. We used to pick on each other and literally box and do crazy stuff that little boys do. And so that was our whole story. And I just kind of tell you this story really to, to convey a bigger truth. Oftentimes we go through our life just so inundated with the automatic things that we do. It's just... Door opens, we step out, door closes, we keep moving. Door opens, we step out, or we stay in, door closes, we keep moving. And yet when we go through, in, in really in, in our country this year, we've endured so many tragedies, have, not, have we not? And then everything that, that happened last week and just the, the heaviness in my heart, and I know it's the heaviness in your heart, for what um, the, the, that little church in Texas had to endure. And yet it's at moments like this, that I believe that I believe firmly that God never wastes to hurt, but it's even in pain points like this to where our automated way of living, it, it just it just stops. And even if it's just a blink, a moment of time where where our country, or perhaps the world stops and evaluates our life and evaluates. And in that moment, it's like, no, I know that the door is just going to open. I'm just going to get out. The door is going to close and life's going to move on. But there's these these moments, these pain points, these grief points to where it's what happened in, in Puerto Rico or, or what happened in the, the churches that's gone on or even the workplace shootings or the school shootings, all of the, the terrible things that have happened this year. All of these things leave us screaming in desperation for God to do something. Does it not? Every one of these. And in this moment, it causes us to hit the panic button on life and say, you know what? I'm not just going to allow the doors to open, me to get out, doors to close, and just move on as if nothing happened. And I believe firmly that God never wastes a hurt. And in the middle of pain points like this, it is a subtle reminder that God is so graceful, even in the, men, in the, in the midst of pain and hardship, to make us stop and evaluate our life and not just, just automate it and just move on as if nothing happened. And, and yet, in the midst of this, I'm so thankful that God stops us because I believe in this, it is a great opportunity for, for the church, the born-again followers of Jesus, for them to shine the light of Jesus into the darkness. I believe this is a prime opportunity. And yet, in the middle of all of this, it leaves us crying for desperation. Desperation for, I just think, a few things. Desperate for deliverance, def just desperate for an escape, or desperate for rescue. God, be near. God, be with me. God, take me away from this. Take us away from this. Cure what's broken here. Desperate for a deliverance, for there to be some sort of rescue plan, some sort of 
sense amongst the chaos. And maybe even for you or I, it's just the desperation for escape from the, the painful reality that we are faced with. There's going to be another painful reality that you're going to be confronted with today. And as we look at the helmet of salvation that's talked about, the, the, the Apostle Paul talks about in Ephesians 6, that David read for us. As we look at that, we're going to stop for a moment. And here's a couple questions I want you to just kind of rest in right now. And I don't want us to just, just automate life and be like, well, I'm in church. I totally expect it. What do, I, I expect him to talk about this. I expect this. I've heard it before in one ear and out the other. Instead, how about we just stop, allow this moment to just stop automating our life before we rest in two simple questions. And the first question is this. Are you a follower of Jesus? Are you a born again Christian or not? Question one. Not to be answered out loud, but that's a question that we all have to wrestle with. Because let me just, let me just like lay something out, I think, pretty clearly. We could go through seasons in our life where we suffer disease, and that disease can take our life, but our sin can take our soul. You can go through certain situations in your life, and, and, and I'm not downplaying it, they're important. I mean, we can go through bouts of cancer, and cancer can take your life. Statistics show cancer can take your life, but your sin will take your soul, and it will take your eternity. You see, there are so many things that we can get bogged down with, and yet so many things that are, that are concerning. I mean, that maybe the condition of your marriage right now is really on the rocks, and I understand that, and I'm not downplaying that, but that's not the most important thing right now for you. That's in this moment, that's not the most important thing. You may have a prodigal son or daughter who's just, who's just gone cray, doing their own thing. But in this moment, here's the reality. That's not as important as the condition of your soul. It's just simply not. It's just not. So how you answer the question, am I a born again Christian or not, becomes the pressing question. And I think an equally pressing question is this. Does my life bear fruit with the testimony I just gave? Does my life bear fruit with the testimony I just gave? So if you are like, yeah, I'm a Christian. I did this thing. I prayed the prayer. I made this decision. Of course, the follow-up question is, does your life bear fruit with the words that you just said about yourself? Because ultimately, these two things are so interconnected. They can't be, they can't be separated. That's what we're going to see today. That when... The Apostle Paul talks about the, the helmet of salvation. He's saying something about us, a decision we make in a moment, but he's also saying something about us, about the way our life looks like, or what our life looks like afterward. But one thing you probably didn't know is the Apostle Paul is not the first one to talk about the breastplate of righteousness. He's not the first one to even talk about the helmet of salvation. That was a prophet by the name of Isaiah. That's actually where we're going to start. We're going to look at several different passages today. We're going to start in Isaiah, and then we're going to go to the right in our Bible. We're going to jump into the Gospels, and we're going to look at Matthew, two different passages in Matthew, and then one in John. But the first one we're going to start with is Isaiah 59, verse 9 through 17. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this, but I think of... of of all the passages in the scripture, this one speaks so plainly and clearly about where we are culturally. 
And, and we could disagree on this, but this is, this is really what I believe. And this is, when I look at the scriptures, I think, wow, this was written 700 years before Jesus, approximately seven to 800 years before the apostle Paul would borrow Isaiah's words, both of which were inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. And yet, it, just centuries before all of that, Isaiah paints a picture about the day and age that he lives in and the day and age, really, that the, the way that civilization, civilization looked up until the birth of Jesus. And yet I think it's also something uh, very telling about us. This is what it says in verse 9. If you have a Bible, maybe you can read it with me. Isaiah 59, 9, it says, So justice is far from us and righteousness does not teach us. We look for light, but all is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. Look at this next verse. Like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like men without eyes. Think of the picture. He says, like the blind, we just don't even know we just don't even know what to do. It's like we're just groping along the wall to try and navigate life. Because the time period that we live in is so dark. It continues. At midday, we stumble as if it were twilight. Among the strong, we are like the dead. We all growl like bears, and yet we moan mournfully like doves. Look at the contrast in the scriptures. I love how beautiful the scriptures are. We look for justice, but find none. For deliverance, but it's far away. For our offenses are many in your sight, and our sins testify against us. Our offenses are ever with us. And we acknowledge our iniquities, rebellion, and treachery against the Lord, turning our backs on our God, fomenting oppression and revolt, uttering lies our hearts have, have conceived. So justice is driven back, and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets, and honesty cannot enter. Then look at verse 15. It says, And truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. What the prophet Isaiah is saying is not just something about his culture. I think it's the same as in ours. To where there's this, this idea that, that you can find your own truth. That it's just up to you to decide what truth is. Like that there is no absolute truth. Truth is conditioned to how you feel. The truth is only on, on the condition of, well, I, I will, I'll do what the truth says as long as I want to do what it is and I like to do what it is. But if it's a truth that I don't like, then I'm just going to push that away. But look what he says in verse 15. He says that about truth, but he also says something about, I think, a lot of people in here. And whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. He says in, in his day and age, in our day and age, if you're a person who gets up and you, you talk about what is right in God's eye, you automatically become the enemy of the world. He says, so if you stand up for truth and you're that person and you're the one advocating at your workplace, you're the one advocating in your home, you're the one advocating in your marriage, maybe you're someone who gets up on a stage like this and you advocate the truth of God's word, just know that there is an enemy and a whole system that opposes you. And he says that they become a prey. In other words, there's a world, we have an enemy. We have our flesh that seeks to divide us and devour us. But look what he says in verse 16. 
he saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So he worked his own arm, his, his own arm worked salvation for him and for his uh, own righteousness sustained him. This is talking about Jesus, the next verse. Look at verse 17. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as if in a cloak. Isaiah is saying, yeah, the, the times were dark and the times are dark. But he paints a picture of a better reality. He paints a picture when uh, that, that, that there would be a savior, there would be a redeemer, there would be a plan, there would be a strategy when Jesus would step onto the earth stage and that he would live his life. And it says that he would put on the breastplate of righteousness and put on the helmet of salvation. And what we see in the apostle Paul's usage um, in Ephesians six seventeen, what we see is when the apostle Paul talks about putting on the helmet of salvation or putting on the breastplate of righteousness, it's literally putting on the attributes and the qualities of Jesus. So Isaiah says the times are dark, but there's a savior, there's a redeemer coming. And the very redeemer that has come is Jesus. Amen. And he's come to redeem people, to redeem the, the works of the devil to redeem the world system and to redeem souls. So as a part of this, when we've talked about spiritual warfare and we've talked about in our foundation series and we talked about spiritual formation, it's literally putting on the attributes of Jesus that if you were to put on the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness, as what Isaiah says in Isaiah 59, 17, and also the apostle Paul says in Ephesians 6, 17, when you put those two truths together, and I love how the Old and New Testament speaks they speak coherently of one another, not in opposition to one another, to be viewed together. I love that because it just says that if you're putting on the armor of God, you are literally putting on the attributes of Jesus. So if you want to know what your life should look like as a born again Christian, look at the life of Jesus. He said, well, what am I supposed to do? Look at the life of Jesus. What's my, what's my, what are my relationships supposed to be like? What am I supposed to value the most? Look at the life of Jesus. Look at what, how Jesus lived and look at what Jesus taught and you will see the answer to that. So, in Ephesians six seventeen, it said this. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We're going to talk about that next week. But he says, take the helmet of salvation. Tell you some things that are important about uh, this particular verse. The word take literally means this. It means to accept from God or to receive or welcome from God. That's what that word take means. That means that the, that the offer of salvation comes from, from, from God himself. That the, the idea of salvation is that not that we're our own rescuer, that we're our own redeemer, that our good works are going to be able to redeem us, that, that we're going to be able to take ourselves out of the pit of, of sin and shame. No, no, no. That's not what this is saying. It says that we need to take or accept from God. So when you take and you put on the helmet of salvation, you put on the salvation that Christ has offered to mankind. It says you are literally taking something that's been given by God and something else that's, I think, quite interesting and so telling. The word take, that particular Greek word, it means that when you take it, it's a snapshot moment. It's a moment in time. 
That doesn't mean that it's just over this period of time and I just went to church long enough and then I became a Christian because I was at church for a long time. No, that makes you a good attender. That's all that makes you. doesn't make you saved. It makes you a good attender. And yet the word take, it literally means that the salvation happens in a moment in time. Because take means, sure, you may have had, you may have been presented the gospel years ago. I don't know what the current statistics are. Years ago, the statistics were that somebody had to be presented with the gospel like nine times before they would actually submit their life to Christ. So like nine times. So sure, maybe that's a story for you. Maybe somebody got up on a stage like this. Maybe it was a friend over the water cooler. Maybe it was your spouse. Maybe it was your parents telling you as a child about the gospel message and reading John three sixteen or whatever the, the passage was for you. And yet it was all of those times to where you heard it and it was like, yeah, that's interesting, but it never actually took root in you. So it's kind of like, yeah, I heard it. Yeah, I've heard that before. Boom, it bounces off you without impacting your life and changing you. What the Apostle Paul is saying is when you take on the helmet of salvation, sure, you may have had all of these experiences where people presented the the gospel, the word of God to you, but there was a moment in time, a snapshot event in your life where you put on the helmet of salvation, that it was in that moment you became saved, not over a period of time. It was in that moment you became saved. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. That's the reason why that word is so important. So, We're going to build upon this. The salvation happens at a point in time. Salvation happens at a point in time. That word take, take the helmet of salvation. It happens at a point in time. Not just a period of time, a point in time. Now I want to connect something we talked about last week and then get into um, this a little deeper. So last week I, I shared with you this acrostic. It's the acrostic for faith. And the F stood for forgiveness of sins. The A stood for assurance of salvation. I is identification of God's family. Uh, T is the triumph over Satan. Or maybe you would say sin. Um, we can play with that a little bit. And you could put in sin. You could put sin in there. And then the H would be the hope of deliverance. Well, I spent a lot of time last week talking about Two of these, the identification in God's family is something that has really been woven throughout this whole year's teaching. So I'm not really going to elaborate on that. You have to listen to the rest of the hours of my talks to get all that. But it's valuable and it's really good. So what I want to spend some time on, just as I told you I would, on the assurance of salvation. And this, is, this speaks into, does my life bear witness that I'm actually a Christian? Does my life actually bear witness of the belief that I profess? Does my life bear witness of the the belief that I profess? And that's assurance of salvation that that we can know that we can know that we can know. Not just because the Bible says so, because our life verifies it. And then uh, the the last one on the list is hope of deliverance. And the, the helmet of salvation, it meant... Uh, there's kind of two lines of thought, one of which was salvation, take, and take the helmet of salvation in this moment in time where you commit your life to Jesus and he becomes your Lord and Savior, right? So that, but also it's the idea of, and there's some, some people who have kind of mixed thoughts on this, it's the hope of deliverance. It's, it's also the hope of deliverance, that, that this life is not just the end of the road for, for every Christian, that this life um, it actually is just a caveat into eternal life with God, the hope of deliverance from this dark world. Now, um, recently, um, eh, not that recently, but a while back I had the opportunity of, of being uh, 
to serve my civic duty in jury duty. Anyone else ever been on jury duty? Did anyone like it? No one. We had one brave soul at 915 who said they liked it. Um, I kind of went into it. I was like, you know what? I'm going to do whatever it takes. I mean, it's kind of my civic duty. It was a grand jury. Here's the way that that works in case you need a civic lesson. I'll give it to you really quick. Um, And if you don't care, just tune me out and tune me back in in a minute. But here's the way that the grand jury works. Uh, They bring in just 20 or so complete strangers into a room. And it's weird. They bring you into a room where you really don't know anyone. It's the cross-section of our community. So there, I literally was in that room, and I was looking around, and, and I, I knew one other person. But I looked around, and I was like, who are these people? I've never seen them before in my entire life. Not at church, not at Walmart, not at restaurants. I don't, are they from Mars? I don't even know where they're from. It was just kind of weird because I was thinking, how can you get like 25 people or so in the same room, 20, 25 people in the same room, and you not know any of them? Or really know any of them. So it was kind of strange. So here's the way it works. You sit in there and you have to, the judge comes in and he's like, make sure you swear that you're going to not tell everybody's business. And you're like, all right, I got it. Yes, I, whatever you have to say. So, so then case by case, it's brought in. And um, the, there's, always an, there's usually an accuser. If somebody had their rights violated, that person will get up and they will basically explain their case. And, and the grand jury's responsibility is whether to send it to trial or not. That's basically what it is. So it's like, yeah, it should go to trial or not. So either an accuser will come forward who had their laws violated, or you'll have the district attorney or the assistant district attorney, and and that person will come forward, and then they will say, yeah, this is such and such, and this is what happened, and then you get to decide if it goes to trial or not. Or maybe um, you have to sit and a police officer comes in and a police officer says, yeah, this is what happened and here's a scenario. And yet you have to decide if you're going to send them to trial or not. Now, one of the things that was really interesting about this day is watching people trying to get out of their responsibility and their civic duty. They would come in and it was like, does anyone have an objection as to why they, don't, they think they shouldn't be on green church? And they're like, their hands going up. Is there anyone else? And they're just like, everybody was like throwing their hands up like, I want to get out of here. But it was so comical to... To, to watch the judge kind of respond to that. And the judge was looking at him like, no, you're good enough. You can go sit down. No, you're good enough. You can go sit down. And yet there was a couple of people who kind of wormed the way out of, of having to do it. And that's fine. They had legitimate reasons or whatever. But it was kind of interesting. But one of the scenarios, and the reason why I tell you this story is not to give you a civic lesson. Now you can listen again. Is this. In that scenario, it, it really kind of paints a, a picture of of, of our seat as, as sinful people in front of a heavenly father and Jesus. Because for you and I, we're kind of the people who could be accused. Because every single person who's walked on the face of the earth has violated God's laws. So we all could be the accused. We could all be sitting there like, oh man, I hope they don't send this to trial. We could be that person. And all of us have somebody who, even if you're a follower of Jesus, is seeking to accuse you. Accuse you of, of you of not being God's children. Accuse you of that you're dead in your sin. Accuse you that you're not good enough for victory over your sin. Not, there's, there's an accuser, and I just want you to know that, that God is, is, is not the accuser. Satan is the accuser, but he's not the judge. Satan is the accuser, but he's not the judge. 
So in my scenario, there was always somebody getting up, pleading the case and kind of telling the story and should this go to trial. So Satan is, he's the accuser, but he's not the judge. Tell you some other really cool things. I think it's kind of cool. So Satan is the accuser, not the judge. Jesus is, is the one. He is one mediator. He's the mediator we need. This is what it says in 1 Timothy 2, 5, and 6. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper, t- at its proper time. So think of it in this way, that Satan is kind of the... Uh, These are accusers saying, well, this is what you've done. Jesus is our defense attorney. So he's our mediator between the things that we've done and the Father. And you would think, maybe like I did, that God the Father is the judge, but he's not. Jesus is the judge. Jesus is the judge. This is what John 5.22 says. The Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. So think of how cool this is that that Satan, sure, he's the accuser. He's not the judge. So he's not the be all end all of your story. Amen to that. He says, so your your story right now doesn't have to stay um, and you don't have to just live with this reality. You can do something with what's being presented to you right now. And yet instead, if you are actually a follower of Jesus, you have a mediator between you and the Father and that being Jesus. So you have, you have your defense attorney who's defending you, but also, he's also the, the Jesus is also the judge. He's also the judge. So he's defending you. He's your judge. Let me tell you something else that's really cool. Jesus also paid our sin debt. Jesus also paid our sin debt. So not only did Jesus know that our sins violated our relationship with, with God, he doesn't accuse us and he just doesn't continually accuse us. Satan is the accuser. And Jesus is the mediator between God and man. For those who are born again Christians, he's that, the mediator. He's the, meaning like defense attorney. He's also the judge and he also paid our sin debt. This is what it says in Romans 3, 25 and 26. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. It continues. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So not only is Jesus, now check out how cool this is. This means that Jesus should have the highest platform in your life if you're actually a Christian. Which means that, that, that Christ is not your accuser, Satan is. And that Jesus is the judge, he's your defense attorney, and he's already paid your sin debt. So when we talk about, occasionally we talk about something, it's, it's kind of like a... a heavy theological word, the doctrine of justification, that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about. It's just as if you had never sinned. It's because of what Christ has done for us, that he's, he's the judge, he's our mediator, our defense attorney, and he's also paid our sin debt. Sadly, Satan has also done some things in the midst of this. Satan has deceived many into thinking they're saved but they're not. If you could please go to the right in your Bible to Matthew 7. Satan has deceived many into thinking they're saved, 
but they're not. So now we're going to make this, this transition to where we don't just talk about the gospel. We just don't talk about that aspect of Jesus. Now we're going to get into and sifting into your heart, into your mind. And I want to do this in a loving way. I'm not trying to meddle in your life, but I think that, the, that, that your life needs to be examined every once in a while. And that's what this teaching gets to. And that's what actually the, the next couple of teachings get to as well. So Satan has deceived many into thinking they're saved, but they're not. And we're also going to see as part of this that many profess in Jesus. This is what it says in verse 21, Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then Jesus says, I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. So there are, there are many who profess in Jesus and they would profess in Jesus in this way and say, well, Jesus, I attended church a lot. I was a really good person. I mean, as compared to an ax murderer, I mean, I'm, I'm like the shining star right now. Like I've done all these things. I was a part of this movement of faith and I went to that church and the church exploded and people were getting saved and I gave money to it and I was serving. And, and we can even be in the middle of that where many profess Christ, but unfortunately some of us, and I dare to even say some of us in this very room who are listening to this message, they are still trying to claim a rightness with God based off of their own actions. And my heart aches for you. It aches for you because Satan has deceived many into thinking they're saved, but they're not. And you could sit back on your your own actions and your own laurels and your own morals and say, well, I've done this and I've done that. And you can hear at the end of your days, away from me, you evildoer, I never knew you. And if that was your destiny as of right now, wouldn't you want somebody like me to stand on a stage like this and to declare the truth of God's word? I mean, wouldn't you? Even if you're absolutely secure in your salvation, wouldn't you want that for somebody else who you're not sure about? This is what Jesus also said. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, puts them into practice, is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So is, is the wise man saved or unsaved? Saved. Saved. Thank you. The rain came down in verse 25. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall. It stood the test of time, did it not? It stood the test and trials of life because it had its foundation on the rock. The rock would be Jesus. Verse 26, but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like the foolish man to build his house on sand. So you said that the wise man, and I agreed with you, the wise man is a saved man. What is the foolish man, saved or unsaved? Unsaved. So now Jesus, he, he says something very specific in the middle of this. That their house, their life has been built upon the rock. But we're not done. Go to the right in your Bible, if you would please, to Matthew 13. Moving right along. Matthew 13, starting in verse 24. What we're going to see in this passage is, is this. Unbelievers may believe they're saved until it's too late. Unbelievers may believe that they're saved until it's too late. That's what Jesus 
teaches us in Matthew 13. And he does it in in such a powerful way. Verse 24 says this, going through verse 30. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. Yet while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat. So now you see there's a contrast, the weeds and the wheat. And it went away. Verse 26, and the wheat sprouted and formed heads. Then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, sir, didn't you, uh, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Then where did these weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. By the way, this is the words of Jesus. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling up the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them together in bundles to be burned. Jesus is using this parable to also convey a deeper truth that there is a place called hell. Then at the last part of this, he says, then gather the wheat and bring them into your barn. So what Jesus is, is saying here is quite remarkable because not only does Jesus say that in the amongst of even a community of faith like ours, people I love to be with, I love when we get together, whether it's to to have coffee or whether we do, I get to do this or whether we community groups or leadership groups or whatever, even, even meetings. I love all of this stuff. But what Jesus is saying is we can all be together and yet part of God's, listen to me, please, part of God's divide plan is to allow the wheat and the weeds to grow together. He says, so it's part of God's divine plan that even in in a group like this, make no mistake that there are people who are saved and there are people who are unsaved. The people who are explaining the parable of the wheat are the people who are born again Christians. And he says also, even in the amongst of them, he says, there are weeds. And Jesus says, and I know that the weeds are there. And out of God's providence, he allows the weeds to be there. And he says, over a period of time, he says, as someone has, has had the, the good seed of Jesus planted in their life and they're becoming like Jesus and doing what Jesus did and they're living a life abiding into Jesus, he says, as their life changes, then what you'll see about them is this simple truth that their life will bear fruit or bear grain, if you will, that it will be wheat. He says, there are people right here potentially in this space, who maybe even have deceived themselves into thinking that they're Christians, but time will tell if they're of the wheat, they're unsaved, or if the weed, excuse me, the wheat being saved and the weeds unsaved, but only time will tell. This says some very, very, very interesting things about us. Maybe about you. Maybe you're brand new in the faith and right now you, you're, you kind of wrestle with, well, I made a decision to follow Jesus and maybe for you, you just haven't seen a whole lot of changes. You've seen maybe a couple little changes, but you haven't seen a whole lot. What Jesus also teaches there is something that's helpful for you if you're new in your faith, that that change will happen over time and it's supposed to happen over time because salvation It occurs at a point in time, but it's revealed over a period of time. The salvation happens at a point in time, but it's revealed over a period of time. 
And that's the deeper truth, I think, that Jesus is also saying. There's over a period of time, you're going to see if you're of the wheat, if you're of the saved, or if you're of the weeds, of the unsaved. He says, even in the midst of that, of life, this is what you're going to see. And out of God's plan, he allows them to both grow together. That's kind of scary, quite honestly. But I'm also thankful that the word of God just doesn't leave us there. So now I want us to fast forward to John 8. John 8. To the right in your Bible, if you're not new to the Bible, it's just to the, to the right, really only a couple pages. We're going to start in John 8, 31 through 42, maybe 42. I didn't get there last time, but I'm going to do my best and trust that that's good enough. John 8, 31 through 42. And what we're going to see here, again, another incredible teaching from Jesus. What we're going to see is we don't have to sit and wonder if our life is of the wheat or on solid ground or the weeds, uh, a foundation on sand. We don't have to wonder, well, am I saved or not? Instead, there are markers of a true Christian, and that's what he speaks into in this passage. So let's go into this word To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples. So if you hold to my teachings, we're going to cycle back to this in a minute. He says, if you hold to my teachings, you're really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, well, we're Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How how can you say that that we shall be free? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I know that you're Abraham's descendants. You are ready, he says, yet you're ready to kill me because you have no room for my word. He says, so you're listening to me, but it's having no effect on your life. You've been listening to all my teachings up to now, and it hasn't done a thing in you. And instead, what they're claiming is, well, we're Abraham's descendants. That gives us a right to be right with God because Abraham was right with God, and he was a patriarch. He was one of God's patriarchs. He's like like a big deal in the Jewish faith. So these Jewish people are saying, no, I'm claiming my own rightness with God because I'm, I'm a son or daughter of Abraham. And Jesus says something It's actually the opposite. He says, yeah, you're claiming some right because you're a son or daughter of Abraham, but you're actually showing that your father is the devil. And I don't have time to go there, but as this continues forward, just about another 10 verses, Jesus pinpoints the root desire of them. And he says, no, no, no. Your father's not Abraham. You didn't even do what Abraham did. You're not, you're not, you're not, you're not, you're not that kind of person. Instead, your father is. That's what he says. So I'm going to give you some markers of a true Christian. Thus proving to, to all of us that salvation happens at a moment in time, but it's proven over a length of time. The first one we see from John 8, 31 is the mark of a true Christian is abiding in the word. They're abiding in the word. There's just this desire to be in the word of God. 
I'm not talking about perfection. I'm talking about progression. I'm not talking about, well, I I never make a mistake. No, no, no. It's trusting the gospel message over your life. Even when you fail God's standard, it's trusting his message, but you just can't get enough of his word. Do you have any room in your life for the word of God? Or are you the type of person who you hear the word of God and you buff it back from it? You're like, that's not for me. That's for somebody else. That's just, that's not for me right now. I've heard that. Sure. That's so easy. I heard that a long time ago. What does that, what does that even matter to me? If that is your story, you're not abiding in his word. And if you're not abiding in his word, I have to ask you the question, are you even saved or not? Because your life is not bearing fruit of that witness. Your life is not bearing fruit of that witness. So we see abiding in his word. And also, we see that abiding leads to freedom. To freedom. That's not freedom to do your own thing. It's freedom to live the life that God calls you to and the life that God empowers you to. It's not freedom to, to just go live this autonomous life. Instead, it's freedom from sin. So first, abiding in his word, the word of God and the sword of the spirit. We'll talk about it more next week. And abiding leads to freedom. Are you actually seeing victories over your sin or could you just care less? Because these become just two. I could use many different markers throughout the New Testament. But these are just two markers for us to stop instead of just living the automated life, just waiting for uh, the, the door to open, us to get out, door to close, and life to just move on. These are a couple markers that we have to stop and dig into a little bit to really evaluate if we're actually a follower of Jesus and does our life bear, bear fruit of that testimony. So, the freedom. So it's, it's victory over sin. It's, it's true freedom to find peace in the midst of life's Struggles, are you living a life of peace? Are you finding refuge in God? If you're finding refuge in God and you're abiding in him and you're abiding in the father and, and you just naturally love God and you love his word and you're gaining victory over your sin, I would say to you, your life more looks like a Christian, but we'll wait and see. Now, I want to give you five questions and we're really in the home stretch on this, but I want to give you five questions in this was kind of rooted in what these, the Jews, they were kind of claiming to just because they're descendants of Abraham that they were right with God. So I'm going to give you five, I believe, are very penetrating questions um, that, that really help us to examine our, our walk with God or uh, the contrary. First question is this, of the five questions to see if you really have freedom. Do you have a secret sin or are you continually repenting? Do you just have the secret sin? You're like, I'm not telling anyone. That's just my sin. It's not harming anyone. It's just about me. I just, I just do this thing by myself or it's just attitude of my heart. I just, I think the way that I think. I'm not willing to change. It's just who I am. Or are you continually repenting? Because if you're a true follower of Jesus, you should have a growing awareness of your sins and you should have a deeper understanding that every sin that you and I commit is a violation against Jesus. Jesus on the cross. So that's one question. To see if you really have freedom. Are you really in Christ? Because these questions then formulate the truth. If you have assurance of salvation that's rooted in Jesus. Or just rooted in what you hope. Second. 
Do you have the capacity to hold on to an offense? Or do you feel the continual need to reconcile? Because one thing that I firmly believe is consistent throughout all of the New Testament is forgiven people forgive people. So for you, maybe the condition of your heart, you're just like, you know what? I just want to hold on to this. This is just my thing. Yeah, I just want to claim this as like part of my brokenness and my identity. I'm not moving past this. I, yeah, I'll just I'll change what I want to change, but I'm just, I'm just not willing to let go of that. And instead, you're holding on to an offense. So therefore, the forgiveness that you think you've received, maybe you haven't received, that you're only doing what you want to do or the flip side of that, or do you feel the continual need to reconcile? To reconcile. To say, you know what? You've done, what you've done against me pales in comparison to what I've done against Jesus. What, what you've done against me, it hurt. I'm not going to lie. I'm not, I'm not going to say it didn't hurt. But, but what you did to me, it pales in comparison to, to what Jesus endured for my sin. Third question is this. Do I have, do you have a reflex reaction to reminders of personal sin? So somebody points up maybe a flaw in you. Do you just kind of like puff up and you're like, no, that's me. Who are you to tell me about this? And so you just, anytime that, that a sin is revealed to you, maybe even in this setting, you just kind of wall up and wall up and wall up. And you're like, no, no, no. I just don't even want to hear that. You don't even know me. And I would say what I do know about you is you're not showing the mark of a true Christian. That's, I would be able to say that very clearly about you. I wouldn't want to say it in a condescending way. I would want to be honest with you in, in a loving and in a kind way, but yet truthful to the word of God. So do you have a, just this reflex reaction? It's just like, just like that. It's like you hear something and maybe, maybe even your spouse says something and you're like, you just want to push back all of a sudden. You're like, I don't know who you think you are, woman, man. I don't know who you think you are talking to me like that. And maybe you're not pushing back against them. Maybe you're actually pushing back against the responsibility of your sin. Fourth question, do you find overt discussions about spiritual intensities annoying or aggravating? Like, why are we always talking about this Jesus stuff? Like, give me a break. Like, you do good or just take your Bible and you, why don't you just go put it in your car? I don't need that right now. I'm living my life. You live yours. I'll choose how I'm going to live mine. You live yours and we'll be fine separated. Do you find yourself and, I mean, you would never dare say this out loud, right? You wouldn't want to be that person, but you would sure say that to yourself. Which doesn't that really show the clear depiction of your heart? Because so many things we will say to ourselves, but we wouldn't dare to say in public. So, do you find these discussions about really spiritual things or spiritual intensities just aggravating and annoying? Like, oh, I can't we just get past this? The reason why we can't get past it is because you haven't gotten past it. That's why we can't. The reason why we have to camp out on sin is because it still exists in our lives. That's why we can't. Fifth question is this. Last one. Do you battle a critical spirit toward people who appear devoted to Christ? Do you just battle a critical spirit like at work or maybe friends you have and you're like, oh, just leave me alone already with all that Jesus stuff. And yet there's just this critical spirit within you. You're like, oh, I just, it's just Jesus people. I mean, they're kind and sometimes, but I've just, I like, I've had enough. Like I, I just, do you find yourself just like pushing yourself away because of your critical spirit? 
toward people who appear devoted to Christ. Maybe in those situations, you just feel inferior and just kind of mad and you're like, you're mad and you can't really put your finger on it. Maybe I just put the finger on it. Maybe it's because you're not actually saved and the reason why it just, you push back so quickly is because your life is bearing fruit that you're not right with God. See, it hurts, it hurts me. Not, not even just the condition of the world or the condition of our country or politics or all those things, they don't hurt me as much as the reality is that many of us can come into this place and listen to messages just like this. We can come in, we can just wait for the door to open, we can get out and wait for the door to close and we can just live such automated lives and we can be so deceived to thinking that we're right with God and our own deception condemns us. So when the Apostle Paul and really the prophet Isaiah talk about the helmet of salvation, they're talking about the, the assurance of salvation and they're talking about the, just the hope of deliverance. Let, let me give you this, this one, I think a definitive phrase through, through this passage and, and the phrase is, is very simple and it's this phrase. If your faith hasn't changed you, it hasn't saved you. If your faith, whatever you're clinging to, if it hasn't changed you, it hasn't saved you. Because if you are truly a born again follower of Jesus, your life will give a testimony that you really are. That your life will bear fruit to say, you know what, my life is built upon the solid foundation of Jesus, not shifting sand. That my life, although not perfect, my life will be like the wheat in the field and not the weeds among them. And these five questions, and there could be so many more, tell us the truth about ourselves. My goal throughout this whole talk wasn't to make you stumble over, am I saved or am I not saved? That's not even the point. To make you feel bad about that. But I wanted you to stop. I wanted you to stop in this moment, to stop the automated way of thinking and living and believing to really evaluate and to really know, am I in Christ or not? Would you stand with me? Right now, I want to, I want to give you a chance to respond. I think that I, it would actually be uh, abuse on my part, like spiritual abuse, if I were not to give you an opportunity to respond to what you just heard. So that's what I want to do. So here's how this is going to work. Um, we're all going to bow our heads and, and close our eyes. And if there's been something that you've heard today that you want to have a conversation about, maybe you're questioning if you're even in Christ or not. Maybe for you, you just have a, a critical spirit over a certain, a certain issue. I, I don't know what it is, but if there's a conversation that, that you want to have or maybe a counsel you want to be given... I want to give you that opportunity. So as everyone's head is bowed and eyes are closed right now. When I begin praying, if there's a conversation that you want to have, there are counselors who are ready. And I, I just want you to, to walk through the double doors, the same doors you came in. I want you to walk through those double doors. And, and there are going to be people who want to talk with you. 
So I'm going to begin praying. And if you feel like you, you need to have a conversation, you, you, you're being drawn to a conversation, you can just step out of the line and you can just go through the double doors. Father, I love you. I thank you for the truth of your word. Lord Jesus, I, I'm so thankful that we can know, that we can know, that we can know that we're saved. That you, you show us clearly in your word that, that if we are in Christ, we will remain in Christ. And that if we have truly put our faith in you, we will look differently. We will have a greater desire to be in your word. We will have a greater desire to repent. We will have a, a greater to desire to make sure that we don't hold offenses against other people. Lord Jesus, I don't know what is going on right here in this room. But Lord, I don't want the doors to open for us to step out and the doors to close and for us to just move on about our life as if we haven't heard the truth of your word. And God, right now, I plead with you, if there's, if there's something that you want to do, I pray that you give somebody the courage to step out of their row and go have a conversation. Give them the courage, give them the bravery to have the conversation, go talk to whoever it is. God, I pray that they would not be fearful. I pray that they would not be resentful. I pray that they wouldn't be angry. I pray that they wouldn't be so self-righteous. I pray that they wouldn't be prideful. I pray that they would have no stronghold that's keeping them from your future for them. And I trust you, Spirit of God. I trust you to do what only you can do. We honor you, Jesus. You are the King of kings. You're the Lord of lords. We pray it in that matchless name. Amen. Again, if, if there's a conversation that you would like to have, um, there are people who are available for you um, over the next couple moments. And uh, you're going to be dismissed, but they'll be back at the doors. And, uh, and we can go have that privately if you would like to. I love you. Have a wonderful, wonderful week.